Today we're going to continue uh, with how our relationship with Christ should affect how we relate to one another. This is what uh, what he's stepped into as we've been going through the letter, what uh, what Paul was, was leading into as he was writing to the uh, Colossians then. Uh, now, we looked, you know, last week, not just in the previous verses of Colossians, but also looked at some guidance in a broader manner from the scriptures as what he has what he has told us and you know what he has given us there because the best interpreter of scripture is always scripture Uh, that's the best interpretation you can get you know what does this mean god's word does not contradict himself so when you think that you have found something that's contradictory uh, that's a good time for you to dig a little deeper it's time for you to to uh, look for more of, of what he has to say to us Last week, the verses uh, dealt and focused pretty much on a relationship between a husband and a wife and, and children, you know, a family, really. Um, you know, and it, we saw that the husband should step up and lead his family, you know, lead his family in their pursuit of and growth in Christ. Uh, and part of that leadership, we're told there, is that the husband loves the wife with the same depth of love that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. As we were pulling in the other scriptures, you know, we, we saw that very clearly. The husband's not to ignore his wife. He is not to run roughshod over his wife, nor is he to impose his will on his wife. Uh, and again, you know, just remind you what he's writing here. As he's as he's writing, um, you know, everyone here is 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 not married. Uh, you know, but whatever God leads you into those relationships, uh, you may you know, they should be godly relationships. They should be ones that honor God, and this is His word to us. Uh, you know, a husband should be realizing that his wife's an equal in Christ because it, well, we're told that again in Scripture. And he needs to consider her thoughts and her feelings as well. Now, one of the things I didn't mention last week, but you have have heard me mention it before. Um, If a husband and a wife disagree on something, um, the husband should not force his will on his wife. Because she might be right. But she also might be wrong. You see, uh, uh, the problem is that both the husband and the wife could be wrong. Both the husband and the wife could be could be uh, either misunderstanding God's direction and God's leading. The husband and the wife might be uh, influenced by something else, whether it's uh, something a physical condition going on in one of them, or whether it's some of the challenges. You know, of life or, you know, maybe they just ticked each other off. That happens on occasion. Uh, Jenny's ticked me off every now and then, you know, and I, I don't know why because it's I'm an easy guy to live with. All you have to do is my way. Um, but isn't that how we approach life? We want others to do it our way, the way we think it should be done. And when it doesn't happen the way we think it should be done, that's when that's when the rub starts. That's when it begins to get annoying. That's when, you know, if that if that continues, you know, if it continues more and more and more, uh, it gets to be a big problem. I was talking with a fellow on Thursday who's running um, his second marathon. He ran a marathon in Columbia City uh, at the end of last year and he's running the Chicago Marathon. 
Well, the Chicago Marathon uh, was the first one I did. And so we were talking about that. And uh, one of the things, you know, that, that I, I told him and just reminded him of, I said, what, whatever you're, uh, you know, whatever you're going to do in, in the race, you need to do that while you're training. Whatever it is, what, the clothes you're going to wear and everything else. Because uh, here's the problem, you see. A little irritant, a little irritant, you know, when you're walking around is one thing. But that little irritant over and over and over again, over the long haul, gets to be painful. Uh, I still remember, you know, when I was when I was doing the long runs and training for, uh, you know, the marathons that um, just the, the loop on my shoelace when I stepped forward was just just touch just tapping just tapping my foot right there by 15 miles it was more than annoying by 20 miles it was painful you see sometimes we think that we can ignore the little things in a relationship and it's not going to make any difference but over the long haul what do we do we let it keep hitting us we let it keep tapping us we let that keep going and you know what it gets annoying. And if we don't do anything about it, it gets painful. Painful to that relationship. You know, whether it's between a husband and a wife, between parents and children, which she also gets into, between friends, between neighbors, whatever else. If you don't take care of that, if you don't take care of what you think is just a little thing, you know, if you don't do something to deal with it, it's going to end up. It's going to end up tearing a relationship apart. Uh, you know. So when the husband and the wife disagree, the husband should love his wife enough uh, to search for God's will together with his wife, and the wife should love her husband enough to search together for God's will for her husband. You know, with her husband. Because, you know, here's the thing you've heard me say before, you know, while the husband and the wife may be confused about what God wants for them, I assure you, I guarantee you, God is not the least bit confused about what he wants for you. As husband and wife or as an individual, God is not the least bit confused about what he wants for you about what he has called you to, about what he wants for you in each and every situation. So if you are confused, and if you as a husband and wife are confused, you need to seek God together. If you as an individual are confused, here, here's the problem when it's an individual. You see, we just think, well, we got it, and we, we plow ahead. You see, but God has given us a gift in marriage that we have someone along who cares about us and who cares for us. And who's walking together after God with us, hopefully, you know, and even if they're not, you know, this is a great opportunity to be able to seek God together. Because you know what? He is not the least bit confused about what he wants for you. And a husband and wife should be working as a team. They complement, they complete one another. You know, they, they complete one another as they pursue God together. And then it goes on and talks about with children. The husband should also lead in guiding their children to pursue God. The husband's told not to exasperate their children. And that would also be direction to the wife, you see, but it seems that the father may have a greater tendency to do so. Um, but the wife is not immune to such behavior. 
That's regardless of what the world tells us, God made us differently, men and women. And generally speaking, women relate better with feelings and caring than men do. And the word to fathers not to exasperate their children. So here's the goal. Let me just sum, summarize that, the, the, those first, that first group of verses there that we went over last week. You know, the goal for the husband is to do all he can to see that his wife and children grow to be all they can be in Christ. And the wife's responsibility, the wife's goal is to do all that she can to see that her husband and children grow to be all they can be in Christ. This is really what he's telling us in in those verses there. God always put a high value on the family, on the family unit. Husband, wife, children, he's always had a high value on that. Let's pray. We're going to continue on as as we look at this whole idea of interacting and relating to one another. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your guidance and direction. Make that very clear to us now. Sometimes we are confused. We don't want to be. We want to see you more clearly. We want to grasp a hold of you. We've been singing about that. We want you to open up uh, not just the heavens, but your word, your will to us, that we might see you, that you might talk to us, that you might speak to us from your word and from what you are doing in our lives, that we will see not only your hand, but your very clear direction for us. Guide us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there. I'm going to begin with verse 22, and we're going to go on into the first verse of chapter 4. It's really a continuation of what he's been saying to husbands, wives, and children uh, regarding relationships and care for one another. He begins here addressing slaves. Slaves often were part of the household. Uh, they were you know, in the home and part of that operation. Uh, but look at what he's saying here. Verse 22 it says, Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while, while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. And there is no favoritism. Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now, in the history of our nation, uh, these are some of the verses that were used to try to justify slavery. That is a gross misuse of Scripture. That was a gross misuse of the Word of God. As you're looking at this here, you know, Paul is not condoning slavery here or anywhere else. And to say that this passage encourages or condones slavery is proof texting with twisting the word of God to say something that God does not actually say. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to those in slavery, he says, Were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. He tells slaves if they can gain their freedom from slavery, he says, then by all means, take that opportunity. Uh, You know, when 
as we go through, you know, we're going to pull in some other verses as we as we walk through this. But what he's what he's writing here in, in Corinthians, what he's writing here in in Colossians, he is writing to a situation that was going on at the time. He is he is writing, you know, to to slaves in a society where slavery was part of the society where slavery was part of the culture. It was a fact of life for them. He's not saying that slavery is acceptable at all. That's not what he's saying. It was a reality that they lived with. Christianity Christianity and coming to Christ does not automatically change the situation you are in. Because they came to Christ... It did not change the society in which they found themselves living. It did not change the reality of what was acceptable in that society and the way the society ran. They were members and part of that society. And he's telling them, look, in this situation that you're in, when you come to Christ, it still can have an effect, should have an effect in how you are living. And this is what he's telling them. He never says that slavery is fine. Their commitment to Christ did not change the reality of living in a society that condoned slavery. We live in a society that condones abortion. God's word is very clear to us that as his people, we should behave differently. He's writing to them and he's telling them, you live in a society that condones and has a part of their society that is flies in the face of what God would tell them needs to happen. And he's saying, so here's how you need to live. He addresses both slaves and masters, the slaves first, really. It almost looks like he gives four verses uh, to the slaves and only one to the masters, but those, those three verses in the middle uh, really uh, apply both ways. All of them really ap- uh, apply all the way here. Look at verse 22. He says, Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. You know, as with the word that he said to husbands and to wives and to children, he puts, you know, the obedience here, the obedience called for is what would be in line, he says, you know, with fearing the Lord. That's, that's the, I was going to say restriction. That's the limit that God, that God puts there in all of those relationships. It's always in what is keeping, what is in keeping, you know, with the Lord. You know, what He says here would be, you know, applicable to any of us in any work we do. He says, in everything, work wholeheartedly to please the Lord. You know, work wholeheartedly to please the Lord. Work. Put in that effort. Put in that energy. Put in that time. Put in that diligence wholeheartedly work in whatever you know he says you know whatever you're doing whatever it work wholeheartedly fearing the lord that word wholeheartedly some of the translations say with sincerity of heart that means without any pretense without any hypocrisy you know that you are not just play acting but you are sincerely giving your best effort that you're doing more than just getting by you're doing more than just the minimum. You're doing more than just what it takes. 
Now, slavery in their time, some would be slaves to pay off a debt. And, and you know, so if they were, if they, we, we saw that, you know, in the Gospels when Jesus was, I think we looked at that last week, when Jesus was, was uh, giving them the parable of, of the man who owed those, those talents. Uh, and what was it, 60, 60 talents? I, I forget exactly what it was. Uh, well, it, it amounted to six million Denarii, you know, so anyway, he, he, you know, he, those, those talents that he owed, uh, and then he was forgiven. Think of it in dollars, you know, he was given, forgiven six million dollars worth of a debt. It's really more than that because a denarii was a day's wage. So he was, he was forgiven six million days wages, and then he, uh, left the master came across a slave, another slave who owed him a hundred denarii. Again, not a small sum of money, a hundred days' wages, uh, but compared to what he was forgiven. Well, anyway, he wouldn't forgive that slave, and you know we forget sometimes what God has done for us. You know, we, we forget, and it says wholeheartedly, without any pretense, without any hypocrisy, that what we're going to do then is, you know, we're going to open ourselves and our lives up to God, and we are going to be changed. Now, they were slaves in order to pay off a debt. What One of the things that the uh, master first said to the first guy, he said, you know, everything you have is going to be sold, you know, and you're going to put in slavery to pay off that debt. It was a life sentence. You know, it was a life sentence. And someone, some people then would be uh, slaves to pay off a debt. Some were slaves because they were captives uh, of a war. One of the things they would do is resettle the population. When Fort Wayne conquers New Haven, they would take the people out of New Haven and, you know, and, and bring them to Fort Wayne. And they would serve as slaves, you know. And some of them were slaves by choice. They made a choice so that they would be taken care of. One of the things that goes on in our society that we don't see sometimes is some people want to get arrested so that they can be taken care of. They want to go to jail so that they can have meals, they can have a place to sleep, some because they need medical care. And we don't see this, so we don't think that this happens. This is what happened in their time, too. You know, but in all situations, the slave was still considered property. You know, we don't, I'd like to tell you we don't have that in our society, but there's, there's human trafficking going on, you know, in our society, which is abhorrent. Um, anyway, um, you know, the, the, the slave could still, was still considered property, could be abused even to the point of death. So when you look at this and we say, well, it's a good boss-employee relationship. Well, while we can learn some things about that, um, it, it, a boss-employee relationship certainly wouldn't be as intense. Um, even if your boss is the biggest jerk in the world, uh, you know, Kent's isn't. But the, uh, you know, to, you know, so, so that, uh, you know, it, it's a more intense relationship that they had, which in some ways, you know, for us and making the choice to follow these directions even makes more of an impact because you can quit your job. But if you're going to instead, you know, work as God calls us to, they didn't have that option. They didn't have the option to quit. And, but he tells them, he says, don't work only while being watched in order to please men. Your work ethic, you know, your work ethic should be the same whether you're being watched or if no one's watching at all. 
You know, it should be the same. There should be no, no, no change. You're working in order to please God, not because you fear some sort of retaliation, not because you fear some sort of, of repercussions there. You know, it's not only for the credit and recognition of some sort. You are working, it, it says, you know, in, you're not working in order to please men, which pulls us right into verses 23, 24. He says, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord. Whatever it is you're doing, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the word and inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Now, to restrict, restrict the application of this verse only to slaves is foolish. Uh, you know, it would probably you know, only be done to cover laziness, which is, uh, which is also a sin. Uh, it seems that that word translated here where it says, whatever you do, it seems that that word is definitely a bit broader than just whatever. Um, I think it could be better translated uh, whatever and whenever. You know, whatever you do and whenever you do something, it's really, it's all-inclusive. That word is an all-inclusive word. It's whatever you're doing, whenever you're doing it, whatever it is you find yourself doing. He said, you know, do it enthusiastically. Enthusiastically, the word literally means from the soul. You know, do that from the soul. Put, you know, put in your very best effort from a deep internal commitment to Christ. Because it's the Lord Christ you're working for, he says. So you're doing it enthusiastically because you, you realize that it, it's, it's because of your commitment to Christ. Not for recognition or accolades of men. You know, he says you do everything in service to and from your commitment to Christ. That's where it flows from. Every single thing you do, always live for the Lord. In every single thing you do, without exception, without hesitation, without holding something aside, do everything in service to God. Last week, um, I went to visit someone, and I had to use the restroom. And so I went to use the restroom. Um, I, I, I noticed um, in there that the uh, toilet was clogged. Well, you know, you never want to do that in somebody else's house. And I thought, well, I noticed it was clogged because the bowl was full. And I thought, yeah, flushing that would be really stupid. And so I, you know, I had a choice. I, I could have just gone and used a different restroom and left it like it was, you know. But I noticed a plunger there, so I grabbed a plunger and um, plunged somebody else's uh, clog uh, it was it, it, it was gross it was you know a, a bit disgusting um, you know but um, I wasn't even sure I was going to fix the situation you know how it is sometimes and um, I do everything enthusiastically and I didn't want it too enthusiastically plunge because uh, the water was full and you know I was trying to be discreet and all that um, uh, and and um, you know, up until now, uh, myself and God were the only ones who, who knew that I did this. But the verse here tells us, whatever you do and whenever you do something, 
Do it enthusiastically, putting forth your very best effort as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord because you serve the Lord Christ. Let me ask you, what do you see is beneath you? What's beneath you? you know, where do you draw the line on what you won't do for someone? Let me ask it to you this way as you look at this verse. What wouldn't you do for the Lord? What wouldn't you do for the Lord? Because it says here, whatever you do, whenever you do something, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. What wouldn't you do for the Lord? Because this verse tells me everything I do, I serve the Lord. In whatever I do, whenever I do it. Everything, everything, you know, whenever I do anything, it says here that I serve the Lord. Verse 25 says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. And there is no favoritism. See, no one is getting away with anything. No one is getting away with anything. So serve the Lord. You know, now we might think we're being sneaky sometimes, you know, and that we can get away with something, uh, you know, and and. We might be, we should be troubled by some of the things other people are doing. I'm hoping that you're troubled by some of the things you see going on around you and some of the things you hear on the news. I hope it troubles you. What bothers me sometimes is what doesn't bother me. And then I'm thinking, why? This should bother me, you know. Uh, but we get so used to it sometimes. Uh, you know, and we, you know, we should be bothered by some of what's going on. But things, you know, things not getting revealed, you know, here on, on, on earth. But it says the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. The wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. Now, let me tell you, don't be pleased by that verse. Well, they're going to get theirs. Don't be pleased by that verse. Be concerned by that verse. You know, be concerned by, you know, by what it says. It may seem sometimes like the, you know, like the wicked prosper, but in the end, which is really what matters, if they stay wicked, if they stay wicked till the end, they will lose eternally. That should bother us. You know, if if someone does not come to Christ Jesus for forgiveness of their sins, you know, and then the only fallback they have, the only thing they have to fall back on, if they don't come to Christ for forgiveness of their sins, what we were just celebrating in communion, that his broken body, his shed blood, you know, for us, if they don't if they don't come to Christ, you know, if they don't come to God through Christ's sacrifice for us, the only thing they have to fall back on is what they have done. That's the only thing they have to fall back on. And we can never, we can never, ever do enough good to overcome the sin we have done. Titus 3.5, King James, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You know, it says here, he saved us not by works of righteousness, 
but according to his mercy. We can never do enough good to overcome the bad. Ephesians chapter 2, for you are saved by grace through faith. This was not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works that no one can boast. You are never going to be able to do enough works to overcome the bad. And just so you know, this applies to everyone. Romans 3, for all have sinned. Every single one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace, not through their works, freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as that propitiation, as that payment, as that satisfaction through faith in His blood to demonstrate His righteousness because in his restraint he passed over the sins previously committed. It's not because of what he has done. It's because of his mercy. It's because of his grace. It's because of his provision. That propitiation, that payment, that, that settlement in his blood that we are forgiven. God is gracious, but he's not foolish. You know, He is fair, loving, and just, but he is not wishy-washy. Uh, you know, you know, he knows everything, he sees everything, he understands everything. No one will get away with anything. That's what the Word of God says. Let's wrap up with uh, the first verse of chapter 4 there. Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now it would be quite easy for them to take advantage of a slave, because after all, they were slaves. You know, and, and what, what could they say? What could the slaves say? You know, how could they complain? Who would they complain to? You know, who would care? They were slaves. You know, instead of taking advantage of either the position or the power as master, uh, you know, or the slaves' position as slaves even, uh, you know, they're called to be caring and humble and remember the Lord. Supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. They were not to treat their slaves, and we could say we're not to treat others, you know, according to the way others treat one another. They were, you know, they were, they were called not, you know, not to treat their slaves just like everyone else treated their slaves. We're called not to treat others just the same way other people, you know, treat others. Uh, you know, they're not to, not to treat them according to the standards of society, of society. We're not to treat others according to the standards of our society. The call here is to remember God is your master. And treat others in light of God's care for you. You too have a master in heaven, he says. You too have that master in heaven. God is patient. He's caring. He's generous with you. You know, and he is for you. He wants you to do well. And this is how he's called us to treat others and to interact with others. You know, whatever you do, and whenever you do anything, and whoever you are with, follow the Lord. Not those around you, not society, not the situation, 
not your feelings. Follow the Lord in everything at every time with every person. Look at, look at the, the points in your outline again. You know, every, everything, every time with every person, please the Lord. Live for the Lord. Serve the Lord. Remember the Lord. Follow the Lord. Who are you going to follow? Follow the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be yours. And again, I'm just reminded and thank you for those who have followed you well, who have followed you in a way that we were able to see and we were able to see what a difference it makes to be yours and what a difference it makes to live for you. Uh, Father, thank you for their example. Now we need to live our life for you. We need to live in such a way that others will see you are our master. You are the one calling the shots for us. Not so that they praise us, but so that they might come to know you. So that they might come to the reality of what it means to have a relationship with you, to have forgiveness, to have life in you. Help us to live it in such a way, Father, that there is no doubt in our minds or in anyone else's mind, but that we are yours. And have that relationship with you. Help us to follow you well, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.